This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. It can be found on page 622 in your black-covered Bibles. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Hey, good morning. Uh, My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Let's pray, and then let's get into this. Father, it is good to be in your house this morning. It's really, really good to be in your house. Everything that we sang about is true, that in you, in your family, life is different. There is actually an end to um, shame. There is homecoming. There is restoration and reconciliation that is possible in and through you and through Jesus. Um, so, like God, we need that. We, we need to know that that's true. We need to remember your word, remember your promises, everything that you said that you would do. And I just want to ask that you would do that. Like, will you make us a people um, who know our father, who know the sound of his voice, who know um, his presence, not just know about you or like facts and figures, but know you, know what it's like to follow you. That's something that you said you would do and said that you can do. Um, So, Lord, will you be faithful to your word? Will you um, open our ears and our hearts um, to a strong passage and help us to actually come away with a clearer view and sense of who you are? Um, I pray all of this in your name. Amen. I'm going to throw out the introduction that I had because I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of whiplash right now. Um, we were clapping. I don't know. Has that happened in this building before? Yeah. Um, like spirits moving. We're, we're, we're singing a new song, like worshiping deeply. We have so many baptisms that it has to take two services for us to be able to do everything. And then blood spatter garments, wrath of God. <laughs> anger, treading wine press, um, that feels like a ton of whiplash to me um, and maybe to you because uh, it, it felt like just in the room, um, it felt like a little bit of a like, 
All right, we're going to hold our breath. Like, what's, what's going what's to happen here? How do we make sense of this? What I want to say to you is that this is not in contradiction to anything that we've been seeing about. Uh, so far today. We've been talking about, singing about, celebrating the promises of God, the faithfulness of God. And when we do that, that happens in a real, actual context with real, actual people in a world where there is real things like shame, like sickness, like evil, like death that cannot just be wished away or taken care of by thinking differently or by singing beautiful songs really loudly. The things that we are up against are actually more powerful than that. They're deeper than that. And they actually take a work of God to free us from it and to actually experience all the promises that we sing about and all the promises that Isaiah has been talking about. So Isaiah 63, one through six is how God is going to be faithful to his word. It's all about the lengths that God will go to in order to save his people and finally, fully, decisively defeat sin, death, and evil and remove it from the world forever and establish a kingdom that is full of peace, righteousness, and justice. To do that, it costs something because the things that you are up against in your own life, the things that we're all up against in this world are really powerful and they're really big and they're really scary and they need a God who is big enough and powerful enough to actually do something about it. So Isaiah 63 is a text that will make you squirm. It's visceral, it's violent, it's sobering. Passages like this are why we preach through entire books of the Bible. I would not have chosen Isaiah 63, one through six if I was just like choosing a text to, to, to do. But it's in the word of God. And we believe that everything in the word of God is true. It points us to who God is. It is written for our good. And so when we come to offensive passages like this that are hard to make sense of, it's important that we actually lean into it. Because the questions that I think Isaiah 63 is raising are questions that you probably experience and have in your life. How can the God who says that he is love be this blood-soaked figure who's coming back from waging war? How do we make sense of the wrath and the anger of God? How do we respond to the wrath of God? Those are all questions that Isaiah 63 invites us to consider. Um, and before we get into that, I, I just want to say a couple things uh, to, to set, set this up. Um, historically, the reason that the church preaches from the Bible is because the word of God um, comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And we need both of those things that we need like the balm and the grace of Jesus that we see shown to us in the word of God because there are actual real stories and situations in this room that need comfort, that need relief from affliction. And 
there is a danger for all of us that we get too complacent and comfortable with the sin and evil that's not just out there, but is in here. And we need strong words to always point us back to what God is going to do about the brokenness, the not the way that it's supposed to be-ness that we experience in the world. So, so I'm trying to walk a line in this passage. I kind of want you guys to do it too with me. I don't want to minimize a single word in this passage um, because God is deadly serious when he talks about what he's going to do to sin, evil, injustice, and unrighteousness in the world and all of those who refuse to turn away from participating in those things. God is really deadly serious about that. And also, on the other hand, this is not a stereotypical hellfire, brimstone, pound the music stand. I wish I had a pulpit to pound. Um, But I won't do that anyways, because the main point of this text um, is not condemnation. The main point is actually redemption and salvation and what God is going to do to save his people from a world that has gone mad. So what is God's wrath? God's wrath is his commitment to rid the world of sin and evil forever and establish righteousness, redemption, peace, and salvation for his people. So today, um, we're, just, we're gonna talk about the context of Isaiah 63. I wanna talk about and address our own resistance and discomfort, embarrassment to the idea of God's wrath. And then I also want to talk about the purposes, what God is actually trying to do and accomplish when he is angry. So if you're new here, um, we've been walking through the book of Isaiah for over a year now. We're almost done. Welcome. Um, It's been a march where we see God revealing who he is as the Holy One who made everything. There's none like him, and he set his love on a people and is committed to do whatever it takes to rescue, redeem them, and save them. And in the the, the last few chapters, there's been an unfolding of what it looks like when God's promises come true. It's going to look like new life, flourishing, justice, righteousness, salvation, reconciliation. There's going to be a reversal of all the curses that we experience in the world and an unleashing of God's presence and blessing on his people. And Isaiah says, hey, when you hear this, the way that you should respond, my people, my church, is I'm going to set watchmen Watchmen who are going to look at what I say I'm going to do and are going to hold me to my word. So they're going to engage in prayer and say, hey, God, you said you would do this. God, you said you would do this. And they're not going to give God any rest until he follows through on his word. That's Isaiah 62. It's what we talked about last week. And then right after that, we get this really violent passage And at first, it's difficult to understand what's going on here because, again, it feels like whiplash. We're talking about, like, the goodness and the promises of God, so how does God's anger fit into that? But if we're paying paying attention, we should be asking the question, hey, what's it going to take and what's it going to cost for God to be faithful to his word? How is he actually going to do that? Because the world that we live in right now does not look very much like the world that God is describing in the previous chapters of Isaiah, right? We don't experience peace and flourishing. We experience tons of conflict all over the place, disappointment, hurt, 
anger, resentment. So how is God actually going to bring a kingdom that doesn't have any of that? Well, he's gonna do that by bringing judgment on sin and evil forever and bringing them out of this world. So um, that's what Isaiah 63 is all about. It's divided into two scenes, set up in kind of a dialogue between the watchman in Isaiah chapter 62 that God sets on the wall and this figure who is coming in the distance. So look down with me um, in your Bibles at... Uh, Isaiah 63, verse one, you see this vision of a bloody warrior. So these are the watchmen speaking and they're looking out, they're on the wall and they say, hey, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So these guys are doing exactly what God told them to do. They're keeping watch. They're looking out for God. They're looking for the ways that God is going to show up and do what he said he's going to do. And they see this figure coming in the distance by himself towards the city. Where, he's, where is he coming from? He's coming from Edom. Edom was a country just to the south, kind of southeast of Israel. Um, And its root, its sources go back to the story of Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. So Jacob and Esau, they're two twin brothers who constantly live in conflict, tension, and strife, always butting heads, always fighting with each other, always competing. Jacob is the father of Israel. Esau is the father of Edom. And that same dynamic that played out in Jacob and Esau's life plays out in the relationship between Israel and Edom. So there is constant warfare coming from Edom to Israel. Edom is this source of clashing, skirmishing, um, evil, slavery. And there's this intensity of hatred that's formed in Edom towards Israel, that as the Bible unfolds, Edom starts to symbolize something that isn't just like a geopolitical conflict. Edom symbolizes the worst of humanity. Edom is um, humanity set apart from God, completely given over to sin, wickedness, evil, and all the suffering that comes along with it. And Basra is its capital. Basra is its capital city. So this figure, this warrior, is coming from the very center of that place, the worst place in the world, the the place where evil and sin is always erupting from. And you notice he's not coming back from just like a minor outlying village or town or city. He's coming from the very heart of it, the very center of power of evil and injustice in the world. And he's not limping. He's walking, marching, assured in strength and power. And the way that he identifies himself is as one who is coming with righteousness and bringing salvation. That's what, he's, that's what he has set out to accomplish. I am bringing back righteousness and salvation for my people. So verse two, these watchmen um, ask him a question. He's like, it's like, okay, it's I, it's you. You're speaking in righteousness, mighty safe. Hey, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press? In ancient Israel, if you want to make wine, you have to press the grapes out, right? So they build these huge stone floors and people go in and they stomp on the grapes and they get all the juice out so they can make wine. In the process of doing that, your clothes get stained, like filthy, covered, right? You're covered from head to toe in this red um, grape juice. 
And they say, hey, you kind of look like that. Why, why do you look like that? Verse three, the answer is, well, I have tread, trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. He's the one who's doing all this work. He's the one who's taking the responsibility to take care of sin and evil onto himself fully, completely. And it's not a wine press. It's, it's actually trampling. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. Why are you in red? It's because I've just come from exercising my wrath and anger upon Edom, the source of evil, suffering, and injustice in the world. And if we read verse three, if you're anything like me, you're super uncomfortable with it. Because we have a real resistance to the idea that God acts like that. And like we maybe have good reason to think that, right? Because how does this square with a God of love? If 1 John 4, 8 is true, God is love, how, how, how does... How does um, Isaiah 63 square with that. Or even if you want to go Old Testament, how does Isaiah 63 square with Exodus 34, 6, where God describes himself as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. We all love that God, right? We all want that God who is actually merciful, compassionate, gracious, whose love never ends, whose love never fails to, to thousands. But again, we have problems with this wrathful, angry God who is covered in blood. And I know that that's not just like an abstract intellectual problem. That's a real problem for people maybe in this room. I have friends and family members who walked away from Christianity because of texts like this, verses like this. It's like, hey, it's cool. I love that Jesus is love, but really don't want anything to do with a God who is like this. Maybe you have friends, maybe you have family members, maybe you even feel that way yourself. And that's, that's not anything new. For the people, like forever, People have had a hard time with the idea that God might be angry. And so uh, we still like the idea of a God of love, so we'll, we'll, we'll hold on to that. But what can happen is um, over time, if we don't pay attention to the anger and the wrath over here, we, and we just look at the um, goodness over there, we start to minimize things. Christianity becomes less about salvation from sin and evil and more about emotional health and well-being, and how can I live a life um, that is good and productive as a good, productive member of society. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr in the 1930s summarized the message of the church in his day this way. He said the gospel in his churches that he's seen was a God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of a Christ without a cross. The problem is that's not the message of the Bible. The, the Bible constantly is holding up the complete and utter evilness of evil in the world. It refuses to minimize it. It refuses to say, 
well, maybe the things in this world that are bad aren't that big of a deal. Maybe, you know, it's just like in our imagination. No, it's, it's always pointing back to the fact that evil is horrific, that sin has real devastating consequences on real people. And we experience in, that, in our lives all the time, and God is not indifferent to it. God is not indifferent to the sin, evil, pain, and suffering that we see and experience in the world and in ourselves all the time. Think about what's happening in our world right now. In Ukraine, we have war, one of the largest European refugee crises since World War II. Families are being torn apart. Cities are being bombed, leveled. There does not seem to be an end in sight. And God is not indifferent about that. God is not indifferent about that. Think about what happened at Olathe East earlier this week. The school shooting, or all the school shootings that we've experienced in this country. Like, God is not indifferent about that. God refuses to minimize that. Think about the fact that worldwide there are going to be 40 to 50 million abortions this year. It's 125,000 a day. God is not indifferent to that. In China, Uyghur Muslims are being rounded up and brought to concentration camps where they're undergoing forced sterilization, extreme labor. Many times that ends up in their death or their families being torn apart. God is not indifferent to that. In the last 20 years, half a million deaths have come in the United States from opioid overdoses. And for the first time in years, the life expectancy in the United States is going down because of so-called deaths or diseases of despair. God is not indifferent to that. In America, one in four children are going to grow up in a home without a father figure. And God is not indifferent towards that. Go visit the Auschwitz exhibit that's at Union Station right now and tell me that God is not angry about the sin and injustice and evil that happens in the world. And friends, all of this and more is what life in Edom looks like. That's what life apart from God given over to the worst of our human impulses looks like. And God isn't indifferent to that. Miroslav Volf, who's a theologian, grew up in former Yugoslavia. Um, and he, he, he talked about um, coming to terms with God's wrath in this way. He said, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. You catch that? God's wrath and God's goodness are not opposed. 
God's wrath is actually his goodness, his love, his pure action and being and commitment to make sure that evil and sin do not have the final say. He will not stand by and be indifferent as the world is wrecked and destroyed. God isn't like us. We're conflicted, we're torn, our emotions are like pitted against each other all the time. God isn't like that. God is purely unified and God perfectly loves, which means that when the people and the things that God loves are threatened, overthrown, and destroyed, he will respond to it. And he'll respond powerfully to it. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the wrath of God. We feel resistance to the idea of a God who is wrathful, but when we take a look at the world around us, the the resistance just doesn't hold up. A God who is incapable about doing something in the world isn't actually good news. But we see from this passage that God does see, God cares, and God is not just able, but will do something about it. And the next last, the last half of this passage, he's going to explain to us what he's actually trying to do and accomplish uh, when he exercises his wrath. So look down at verse four. Verse four, he says, hey, I've come because the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Look back up on the page to uh, Isaiah 62, verse 12, the last verse in 62. Um, they shall be called, this is God's promise, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. This is how God is actually accomplishing redemption. It's, it costs something for God to really bring about full redemption and reconciliation. Um, and he, he's saying, hey, there is going to come a point in history where God is going to say, hey, that's enough. And he's going to put an end to sin and evil forever. And there are three reasons that he's going to do it. The first reason is for his glory, for his name's sake. Um, two times in this passage, God says, hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is not the work that you do. This is the work that I myself am going to do. Because God made the world, right? He made the world out of an overflow of his love and his glory. And his name is on the line when sin and evil are running rampant. And so for his namesake, for his glory, he is going to step in and do something about it. He said, hey, I looked, but there was no one to help. We're all implicated in this. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. Do you catch that? That's the, the, so God is going to work. God is going to um, show wrath and anger against sin and evil for his name, for his glory. But second, he's going to do it for the salvation of his people. He's not just going to leave people living in Edom, stuck under the power of sin and evil forever. He's actually going to take people out and bring them into a new kingdom, a new home where that former way of being does not work anymore. God is saving his people from uh, their enemies. God is saving his people from themselves. He is bringing salvation. And the good news is that wrath is not God's first response to sin and evil. It's not his first response. Ezekiel 33.11 actually says um, that God takes no pleasure in, in, in the death of anyone, in the death of wicked people. He said, hey, I would much rather them turn and repent and come to me. So God is patient. 
God gives opportunity after opportunity for people to come back to him. Uh, Turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 2. It's on page 940 if you're using the black Bible in front of you. In Romans chapter 2, this is uh, the Apostle Paul, and he is... um, talking to this church in chapter one, he's explaining why and how the wrath of God is coming uh, in the world. And then this is the, this is the application he, he says to them. Therefore, he says, you, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges, you're implicating this too. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? Do you hear that? He's saying, hey, we're all hypocrites. We, we judge and blame people for things that we participate and do ourselves every single day. This is, this is important, verse four. Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so God, the same God who is slow to anger, gives opportunity after opportunity for people to turn to him, to repent and find grace and salvation in him. But there will come a point where the third reason God shows his wrath is number three, he's gonna take care of the problem of sin, death and evil forever. At some point, God, the God who loves this world so much, who made it to be a place full of flourishing life, peace, the biblical word for that is shalom, is going to rid the world of anything and anyone that is going to tear down and um, participate in the destruction of his good world and his good creation. That is Isaiah 63, verse 6. He said, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. There's gonna come a point where God says enough. Um, I'm going to fully come and I'm going to fully establish my kingdom. And again, what is he doing when he's bringing that wrath? He's moving evil away and out and doing away with it forever. He's gonna say, hey, you have no power here anymore. Um, it will not have any place in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of his son. And so all the promises of God that we've been singing about, that we hear about, it costs something to actually keep those promises. The things that we're up against are really serious. The things that inside of, are inside of us are really serious. And it takes a deliberate and drastic act from God to put things right again. So, so what kind of response should a passage like this uh, call from us? The first one is like, dude, take refuge in him. Take refuge in the Son of God because we're like, we're born into Edom. That's, that's like our natural default disposition. We all participate in all these like systems of evil and injustice in the world. It's inside of all of us. It's like, it's inside of us. It's not just something that is out there. It's something that we need to be rescued from. And the message of the Bible over and over and over again is hey, it's like, hey, take refuge in the God who's going to make everything right again. Take refuge in the God who is going to bring 
perfect justice finally and completely to the entire world and to everyone someday. And remember, as Fleming Rutledge, the theologian, says, justice for everyone is actually an alarming thought because it raises the possibility that it might actually come on me. As the author of Ephesians puts it, by nature, we're all children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So look to him for salvation because the gospel of Jesus says that all the ways that we have participated in and promulgated the kingdom of darkness like racks up in debt that we can't pay. Like we cannot make that right on our own. The good news of the gospel is though Jesus paid it all. Jesus took care of absolutely everything. So take refuge in him. Number two, the authors of the New Testament look at um, passages like this and they say, hey, God's gonna take care of everything. So don't avenge yourselves, leave it to God. That's Romans chapter 12. Let me, let me read just a few verses. You don't have to turn over there. This is Paul and he's um, talking about Isaiah 63 and how that has implications for the way that we live. He says, hey, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. The church he's writing to have plenty of reasons why they would want to avenge themselves. They're being betrayed by close friends and family members. They're being hunted down and persecuted by um, governmental authorities. There's plenty of reasons why they should try to avenge themselves, try to make things right on their own. But, but he says, hey, don't avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The way that we respond to like, the wrath of God is leaving it to God to work things out. Which means that we can actually respond with love, blessing, and goodness when we do encounter evil in the world. We can actually forgive because we trust that God is going to work everything out in the end. Because we have to, we have to understand three things when we're talking about um, sin, evil, darkness, and suffering in the world. The Bible says three things really, really clearly. Um, evil is completely evil. And it's really serious. And it's really in the world. And we really experience the consequences of it every day. And it's inside of us too. Number two, it also says, in spite of that, God is actually completely good. God is holy, pure love who will make sure that holy, pure love has the final say. And number three, even when evil is doing its worth, God is completely sovereign and in control. Because like, this, isn't, this isn't even like a battle in this passage. There's no risk that evil or Edom might have the final say. God is going to have the final say. God is always going to have the final say when it comes to sin, death, evil, and suffering in the world. And we talk about every single week the way that God is going to meet his word and be true to his word. Because the place where the justice, righteousness, holiness, salvation, and wrath of God all come together is in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Because the twist um, in Isaiah 63 and in the gospel is that the blood-soaked garments of Jesus aren't covered in his enemy's blood. They're covered in his own blood poured out for his enemies. This is actually the way that God first brings his wrath into the world. He doesn't bring it in a way that he's like, okay, well, I'm just going to like smite, get rid of everyone. I'm actually going to take all the consequences of sin, evil, and death that we've racked up. And I'm going to take it on myself. This is not, by the way, Jesus trying to appease an angry father. This is God, the father who loves his world, who made his world, being committed to bring salvation to the world and to bring sin, death, and evil into one spot and judge it finally and fully. That's what's happening on the cross. Jesus goes into the very heart of darkness. He takes sin and evil upon himself and he takes the wrath of God upon it where it is finally, fully defeated in him. And that's not the end of the story. Because he walks out of the grave three days later and leaves sin, death, evil in the grave and opens up a new way of living around his son. Because when pure light, when pure love, when pure holiness encounters darkness and evil, it wins every single time. I like this quote from Dan Darling. He says, um, the only kind of perfect justice against Holocaust-level wickedness is the kind that God displays in his wrath against Jesus or in the reality of an eternal, fiery hell. Only Jesus can defeat the corruption that worms its way into human hearts and causes people to turn against each other. Only Jesus can offer forgiveness both for the reprehensible evil in human history and the silent, passive evil in my own heart. And the word of the cross is that in the crucified Jesus, sin and evil are defeated. We don't actually have to wonder whether or not the Putins of the world are going to have the final say because they never will. Because God isn't indifferent to them. God is not indifferent to the evil that we see working out in the world always. He will bring an end to it. And he, and he offers kindness. He offers compassion. He says, hey, there is another way. Turn to me. Come to me. I've paid everything. I'm bringing a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And here we are, like still experiencing the impacts of the sin and fall in the world. Why? Because God's kindness, God's patience is meant to bring us to repentance. It's meant to say, like, bring us to him, like, of our own free will, like, of our own will, saying, yes, like, that's where I'm going to put my hope. That's where we're going to put my trust. Like, I see the power of sin and evil in this world, in my life, and I need someone who can absorb the consequences of that. But, friends, like, the message of Isaiah 63 that we can't um, take lightly is that one day God is going to come and put an end to that for good and remove it forever. And all those who refuse to turn away from that, to re who refuse to stop participating in the system of Edom are going to be removed with it. And that's like the sobering reality of what it takes for God to actually be faithful to his word and keep his promises. It takes the bloody, broken body of Jesus Christ absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf and fleeing open a door to a new kingdom that can't be shaken, 
that will not end and that cannot be overthrown. So today, if you hear his voice, like run to him, rest in him, find all of your hope in him which is what we do every single week. Like every single week when we come to the communion table, come to um, these stations, we're actually remembering the wrath of God. We're remembering the anger of God, that God isn't indifferent to sin and evil. He's gonna do something about it and he has done something about it in and through his son. So if you're a Christian, if you believe that there is life that is found in him, come to this table, take this meal. Remember that God's grace has been poured out and shown to you that the way God is faithful to all of his promises and faithful to all of his word is through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. The way that we take communion here is we'll have uh, three communion stations up front. We'll have one up in the top um, um, we'll have two with bread, wine, and juice. On either side, there is wine in the stoneware and juice in the glassware. And we'll also have a solo uh, single-serve uh, gluten-free station if you're not comfortable in participating in a common cup up front also. Same thing will be up in the balcony. Hey, if you're not a Christian, like we believe really strongly that God is perfect love, that God is doing something about um, everything that we experience in the world. And we would love for you to put your trust in him. If you have questions about what that looks like, we'd love to talk with you. We'll have people over here um, who will pray with you. Uh, if you are a Christian and feel just like a need for prayer in your life, please come and get prayer as we come to the table um, and continue in worship. Um, I'm going to pray, um, and then the band will play, and we'll come to the table. So, Father, um, and God help us. We need your grace. Uh, we need your justice. We need you to be faithful to your word. So will you do that? Uh, will you come and put an end to shame because the blood of your cross speaks a better word? Uh, will you do away with the kind of evil that we experience in our lives and in our communities every, like every single day? Um, God, our world is crying out for justice our world is crying out for relief. We're crying out for justice. We're crying out for relief. Um, so will you bring that, please, through your spirit, through your son, uh, in this place right now. Pray this all in your name. Amen. Come to the table when you're ready.